This morning, if you look with me in the Word of God into James chapter 5, begin reading at verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that you may be healed. That the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that he might not reign, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again until the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. I want to talk about the power of intercessory prayer. The power of intercessory prayer. The gift of speech is a tremendous thing, especially if that gift of speech is used to bring glory and honor to God. James in his epistle had a tremendous amount to say about the tongue and about the power of the tongue. And James chapter 5 is no exception. As a matter of fact, James lists for us several things about a lesser use of the tongue. He says, with the tongue you can complain, and with the tongue you can swear. But James also points out some higher uses of the tongue. He said, with the tongue we have the privilege of proclaiming the Word of God to people that need to be birthed into the kingdom of God. With the power of the tongue we can proclaim the Word of God to bring peace and bring joy and bring direction to the lives of men and women and boys and girls. With the power of the tongue we can praise God, and with the power of the tongue we can pray and to the living God who sets upon the throne. May I remind you, prayer is a high and a holy privilege. To think that we as God's children can bring our needs to a living God anywhere, anytime, day or night from anywhere upon the face of this earth, it's something remarkable to think about. To know that we as the redeemed children of God can bring our heartache, our pain, our fear, our turmoil, our disappointment, our sickness, our disease, our sad, whatever it may be, we can bring it to God Anytime we desire to do so, and his ear is always open to hear the cry of his people. Seven times in this paragraph, James mentions prayer. Think about it. Seven times in one paragraph, James mentions prayer. Uh, he said uh, that, that the mature Christian is a person that prays in all troubles of life. When troubles come, and friend, they will. Jesus said, in the world you're going to have tribulation, so you might as well be of good cheer for he overcome the world. Troubles are part of life. Uh, the temptation is part of life. Trial and testing are part of life. There'll be times you'll be on top of the mountain, and there'll be times the mountain's going to be on top of you. Uh, rest assured, you're either going into a trial, or you're in a trial, or you're coming out of a trial. But what do we do? A mature Christian will not murmur and will not complain and not get fed up and swear and curse and I'm going to quit and blame somebody else. A mature Christian will take his or her needs to a living God through the medium of prayer. Praying is a mark of spiritual maturity. Let me say it again. 
Prayer is a mark of spiritual maturity. Murmuring and complaining is a mark of immaturity. I think that faith and prayer go together, but lack of prayer and unbelief will go together. Prayer is not the last resort for a child of God. Prayer should be our first priority in seeking the face of God. Now, James describes, if you will, uh, four situations in which God answers prayer from those of us that will take the time to pray. Uh, first of all, in verse 13, pray for, for the suffering. In verses 14 and 16, pray for the sick. In verses 17 and 18, prayer for the nations. And then verses uh, 19 and 20, uh, we're to pray for those uh, who are straying. Now, James does not specifically uh, mention prayer uh, in verses 19 and 20, but by implication, it is there. If we're supposed to pray for those that are sick and afflicted, if we're to pray for those that are suffering, I believe we should also pray uh, for the saints of God, men and women that are drifting away uh, from the things of God itself. I'd remind you prayer is a privilege. It can be hard work, but it is a necessary work. It is a needful work. And God is looking for men and women and boys and girls who will take the time uh, to spend some time in intercessory prayer uh, before the throne room of God. When we think of intercessory prayer, we think of long and laborious prayer. Uh, we think of boring and monotonous praying. Uh, we think of some type of form and ritual that we've got to get in. Let me tell you something. If you and I will simply avail ourselves to God, when God says come to prayer, we may be there five minutes and we may be there an hour and 15 minutes, but if God is bidding us to come, if we'll but obey Him, we will find that it'll be like driving a nail into soft wood because the Spirit of God is behind uh, the prayer that He wants us to pray for the individual at that given time. Let me tell you, by definition, the word intercession uh, means to impose in behalf of someone as by pleading or petition. A prayer to God on behalf of someone else. Intercessory prayer is a powerful thing. Uh, God can use us to intercede for our families for our spouses, for our children, for our churches, for our missionaries, for our nation, for our pastors, for whomever it may be. God wants us to pray. Uh, the list goes on and on. John G. Lake, a leader in the 20th century, a Pentecostal movement said, when you hear the children travail, know Jesus has one foot in the door. Uh, also, Doug Small, a Church of God Bible teacher and prayer leader reminds us, we are not a church with a prayer ministry. We are a praying church. I hope that we're not just a church with a prayer ministry. I pray to God that we are indeed a praying church. Now, I gave you the definition of intercession, but what does intercession really look like? Intercession may be defined as holy, believing, persevering prayer, whereby someone pleads with God on behalf of another or others who desperately needs God's intervention. An intercessor is someone who takes the place of another or pleads on behalf of someone else's case. Again, being priest unto God is who we are, but the spirit of intercession is what we do. We are priests unto God. That's who we are. But intercession is what we do as priests unto God. The Word of God declares that we are a holy priesthood. 
We are a royal priesthood. And the book of Revelation tells us uh, that we are a kingdom of priests as well. Are you aware that Jesus Christ was and is a model intercessor? We often look at Jesus as the Savior, as the Messiah, as the Deliverer, as the Healer, and all of that He is. But we often have failed to realize that Jesus Christ is also a model intercessor. The Isaiah tells us, and he saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness it sustained him. Jesus Christ stands before God in heaven. He stands before God, but he also stands between God and sinful man the same way as the Old Testament priests did. Now we understand the Bible said, for there is one God and one mediator, intercessor, uh, between God and man, that man Christ Jesus. Paul said, it is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, and is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. The writer of Hebrews said, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that came unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. How then do we enter into a life of intercession? As priests unto God, you and I today, as followers of Christ, we too stand before God, as did the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament priest function, but we also stand between uh, God and sinful man the same way Jesus modeled. Let me say it again. As priests unto God, we stand today before God. You and I do. But we also stand between God and sinful man. And that we have got to learn to stand before God in wholeness and purity before we can ever be effective to stand between God and, and sinful man. Are you with me? The Bible lets me know, brothers and sisters, that we got to stand before him uh, before we can stand between him. The Bible uses two words to describe our priestly ministry, and that is holy and royal. Peter said, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As priests unto God, we ought not be out here in darkness. We ought to be living in the light of God's Word, in the integrity of God's truth. Brothers and sisters, holy living and holiness are required before the Lord. You don't get a lot today about holy living. You don't hear a lot today about holiness. And we think holiness is sometimes what we don't wear and where we don't go. Holiness is not about what we do at the outside. Holiness is what takes place on the inside. And if you not take place of what's on the inside, the outside will take care of itself. I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, wholeness and holy living are required to stand before the Lord. And we do that based not upon our works. We do that based not upon our righteousness. We do that based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's all because of Calvary. I am clean through the words of Jesus Christ. There may be times you feel like, I can't pray. I, I, I feel tempted. We all are tempted, my friend. But we let that not bother us. We come through the blood of Jesus. 
Jesus Christ, we stand before the throne of the living God and we can boldly proclaim uh, between God and between sinful men and we intercede for them during that time. Uh, royalty is descriptive of kingly authority. As members of the royal family, we have legitimate access to the throne of God. As members of the royal family, we have access boldly to the God who created the world, who sits upon that throne. Are you hearing me? Amen. That ought to make your skin rip today, friend. We can go before a living God who created the world, who sustained the world, who said, let there be and there was. We have the access to that God today, and he is not stingy with his power. He's not reneging on his promises. They're still yea and they're amen. But everybody can't do that. But everybody tries to do it. And this is what bothers me and probably bothers you too. We see a lot of sinful people. A lot of people that walk like the world, talk like the world, and live like the world. But they say, oh, how I love Jesus. Oh. I talked to a guy this past week. His breath could wilted an artificial flower 10 feet across the room because of the pot on his breath. His eyes were dilated and glassy, and he said, but I love God. What God's he talking about? Let me tell you something, friends. We may have an all-inclusive God that's going to invite everybody to heaven, but the Bible doesn't say that. We're so opposed to borders, and we're so opposed to fences, and blah, blah. But let me remind you, there's a wall in heaven, and there's gates in heaven, and you may knock and huff and puff and try to get in, but unless your name is written down in the Lamb's Book of Life, you're not going to make it to glory. And unless you walk before the Lord in this world in a clean, a clean life, you're not going to be able to intercede before God the way he's called us to intercede. Yeah. Get clean. Stay clean. And then let God use us in intercession. Sometimes the priestly intercession we will do with understanding. Uh, th that occurs when we intercede behalf of others in our own native language. And whether it's Spanish or whether it's English, we understand what we're saying. Paul said, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayer, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all in authority. At other times intercession is made in the Holy Spirit. When things like that happen, I don't know what I'm saying. There are times I'm so burdened in prayer. I run out of words to say. But then there's something about the Holy Spirit just seems to take over deep down on the inside. And I begin to pray in other tongues as the Spirit of God is leading. I may not know what I'm saying. The devil don't know what I'm saying. But the God up on the throne knows what I'm saying. And I may not have the answer when I get done. But I have the assurance that my spirit has touched the God who sits upon the throne. And I know everything going to be all right. Yeah. Paul said, likewise, the Spirit helps our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. He also wrote, for he that speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. How then do we pray for other people? Are you ready? Paul gives us a good idea. Let me paraphrase it in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. May they be filled with knowledge of the Lord's will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. We pray that they may walk in the manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ and please God in all respects. We pray uh, that they may bear fruit in every good work. We pray that they increasingly grow in the knowledge of our Lord. We pray that they may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. And we pray that they may express joyous gratitude to the Father for his abundant mercy and grace. Look with me in John chapter 4. 
Turn with me, please. John chapter 4, verses 30, 43 and following. Now after two days he departed thence and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet had no honor in his own country. Then when he was come to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did uh, at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went up to the feast. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus to him, Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The nobleman said, Sir, come down ere my child die. And Jesus said, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. And the father knew that this was the same hour from which Jesus said to him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed and the whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he come out of Judea into Galilee. This is the second miracle that Jesus performed in Galilee. It illustrates to me a perfect example of what intercessory prayer should look like. Think about this. A perfect example written for us right here of what intercessory prayer looks like. Recall the first miracle of Jesus in Cana was he turned water into wine. Now Jesus is getting ready to go back into Cana. I believe the Galileans said, man, I can't wait for him to get back here. He is a miracle worker. And only that, but the Galileans, some of them had been down to Jerusalem at the Passover, and they had seen Jesus drive out those that sold their wares, and he'd seen them turn over the tables of the money changers, and Jesus said, take these things away, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And he said, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Those Galileans went back and said, you know what? The same Jesus turned water into wine. Boy, he gave it to those guys down there in Jerusalem, and he's back here again. We can't wait to see what he might do among us again. Why did Jesus return to Galilee and Canaan? Some have said maybe he wanted to be able uh, to stoke the fire or to cultivate the seed of faith that had been sown in their lives the first time that he came. I don't know. But there are several people that we know that was affected by this second miracle. A heartbroken father, a dying son, the Galileans, and the nobleman's household. Let's look at the heartbroken father. The text says this man was a nobleman, which meant he was a royal officer under the leadership of King Herod. The man was powerful, but when you meet him in this text, he doesn't seem to be that important. We're not introduced to his power. We're not introduced to his ego. As a matter of fact, we see a broken man. We see a desperate man. We see a man of emotion. We see a human being with legitimate need. We see a desperate father. We see a man crying tears. We see a man at last resort. And instead, uh, all the power and all the prestige and all the money he had did not mean a hill of beans to that man at that time. He 
he had no money, it didn't matter. No doubt this man heard the first time that Jesus had come to Canaan and he heard that Jesus turned water to wine. He goes, you know what? If a man can turn water to wine, maybe that same man can heal my son. Notice if you will, the first miracle in Canaan happened because a woman asked him to do it. And the second miracle in Canaan was about to happen because a man asked him to do it. Friend, God is no respecter of person. If we ask in faith, believing, did he not say he would do it? All this man could think of the fact that his son was sick and appeared to be dying. This nobleman heard that Jesus was in Canaan, so he went out and got him an Uber, and he rode 20 to 25 miles down into Canaan. Thank God the man knew where to go to in the time of trouble. He knew where to turn to in the time of need. He humbled himself. He realized he needed help, and he felt like if Jesus could help me, if he was concerned about a wedding, maybe he'll be concerned about my son. If he's concerned about wine, maybe he's concerned about death and life. All this man could think about, I get to my son. Notice, if you will, this man didn't blame anybody for the boy's sickness. He didn't sit on his pity pot. He realized he needed help. And he couldn't find help in Capernaum. He couldn't find help with the medicine. He apparently couldn't find help with all the wives' tales. He couldn't find help with all the homemade remedies. But he said, you know what? I hear about a man called Jesus. He's 25 miles away, but I'm going there where he's at. He did something that even his peers didn't understand. A not-so-spiritual man did something spiritual. He called on God. If a not-so-spiritual man can find mercy with God, how about those of us that really belong to him? Is God a respecter person? Do you think God will do for a nobleman what he won't do for us? I don't believe it for a minute. God said, I will do exceeding and abundantly above what you have. Now, friend, I cannot defend God. I only proclaim what I believe God's laid on my heart, and I've got to respond to it by faith, and we've got to respond to it by faith as well. He wanted to meet Jesus in person, and he begged his, Jesus to heal him. But here's the thing. He wanted Jesus to go back down to Capernaum with him. He just didn't sit back and watch his son die. He did something. To me, this is faith. The boy was at death. He might have been comatose. He might I don't know. He was not responding. Something was there that they knew he was dying. Often we will stay at that bedside. We want to hear their last word. We want to hear the last breath. We want to hold their hand. We cannot stand for our loved one to die and we not be there. Come on, that's who we are. But this man left 25-mile journey walking. He may have had a donkey, but they don't go fast. And then to turn and have to go back. That is about a 50-mile journey this guy took. And don't you think the whole time he was using his faith walking toward Cana? Your son's going to die. You're wasting your time. Who are you? You're nobody. You're not even one of the disciples. You know the battle of the man. How many of you know the battle in the mind? We all have that battle in our mind, church, because we're human. This man had a battle in his mind as he was walking those steps. The only thing we read of him doing was going before Jesus on behalf of his son. He didn't go before Jesus because of his emotional basket case, because of his own sickness, because of his own suffering, because of his own demise. He went interceding on behalf of his son. The father had faith. I'm not sure what kind of faith it was. It started out as a crisis faith, but it came into being a confident faith, and then it became a confirmed faith, and then, thank God, it became a contagious faith. That's a little faith in God. Friend can move a mountain. We don't need the size of faith the size of a mountain to move a mustard seed. If we have the size of faith, uh, faith the size of a mustard seed, he said we can move a mountain. 
Faith is only as good as the object. And in this case, the Father's faith within Jesus and Jesus alone. It's amazing what humility before God can do. It's amazing what faith in God can do. Notice the dying son. We really don't know what type of sickness the nobleman's son had, but we do know it was something that those around him considered to be life or death. As I said, we know he had a fever. There must have been some similarity between that boy and other people that had died with the same ailment this young man had. Two times the text emphasized the fact that the son was to the point of death in verse 47 and dying in verse 49. No doubt about it, this was a matter of life and death, and the father knew it. Somebody said this father made two mistakes. I don't swim as deep as that, but perhaps he did. Number one, the father made the mistake thinking that Jesus had to leave Cana and go all the way back to Capernaum. He who creates the world has power to send his word anywhere. The second mistake that he made, and again, I don't swim that deep myself, I'm just telling you, but some have suggested that even if the boy had died while he was in Cana and the boy had died in Capernaum, Jesus could still speak the word. He could come back to life. The only thing that I know according to Scripture, Jesus said, go your way. Your son's alive. Praise God. Notice the Galileans. There were many people that day that heard the conversation between Jesus and this nobleman. However, the motivation for following Jesus was much different than this desperate father. The father had come to Jesus believing that if he could just get Jesus back with him, his son would be healed. But the Galileans, they were not following Jesus because they thought he was Messiah. They thought he was my Savior. They called him because, followed him because he's spectacular. He's the miracle worker. We want to see what he'll do. We want to see if he'll perform another miracle. We want to see some sign. We want to see what he'll do. They just wanted him to see him doing something. They wanted the headlines. They wanted to see a miracle. They wanted to have something to talk about the barbershop the next day. They wanted something to talk about the beauty shop. They wanted something to talk about, you know, over a bridge or something at the next tea party or something down at the store they could talk about to say, look what I've been a part of. I've seen the miracle. We're too busy seeking miracles when we ought to be seeking Jesus. And we're too busy following miracles when miracles ought to be following us. The Bible said Satan will deceive in this last day with lying signs and wonders. And people flock after that like a bee flocks after nectar. But I'm here to tell you, friend, we ought not be seeking signs and wonders. We ought to be seeking Jesus Christ. We ought not be following miracles and signs and wonders. We ought to be seeking God and the miracles and signs and wonders. Follow your preaching. Follow your ministry. Follow your testimony. He said in the last day, I will pour out my spirit. And these signs will follow them that believe. Don't give up. Trust in the name of the Lord. Can you imagine the conversation? They wanted to see something big. Hey, Eli. Do you think Jesus is going to go all the way back to Capernaum with this guy? Do you think that maybe it makes any difference at all? I mean, sure, he turned water into wine. I don't, I, don't, I don't really think it really happened anyway. But do you think this supposedly winemaker could cause this man to be healed? I don't know. I believe it's here that Jesus rebuked them. Even though Jesus was speaking to the man, he was speaking for the Galileans to hear I can picture Jesus walking up to this man, but speaking to the Galileans by saying, except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. But notice how the man responded to Jesus. Sir, sir, come down, lest my son die. He wasn't seeking miracles. He was seeking Jesus. Yeah. All the crowd was concerned about was signs, wonders, and miracles.
But the heartbroken father was concerned about seeing his son raised up. He was desperate. The others were curious. I'm grateful that God understands the difference between curiosity and desperation. Amen. And friend, if you're desperate in your heart and you're not going to be humble before him, we can trust this God of all glory. In John chapter 2, there's an interesting scripture to me. The Bible said there's a group of people that committed themselves to Jesus, but Jesus did not commit himself to them. I've always found that strange in John chapter 2, 24. Why? He came to seek and save that was long. He came to draw men to him, but he didn't anything to do with these people. Why? Because they didn't want to follow him to be the Messiah. They didn't want to follow him to be the Savior. They wanted to follow him for bread and for the wine and for the miracle and for the glory and for all the spectacular stuff that was going on. They didn't want Jesus. They wanted the benefits of what Jesus could bring. They didn't want him. They wanted this power. They wanted to say, I'm spiritual. Look at the crowd I run with. Look what I'm doing. Look what I'm experiencing. For any minute to tell you, we need to humble ourselves before God and call upon him. I've got to hurry. Notice the nobleman's household. This was an important man, and so his household would probably be made up of his wife, his children, other servants, and relatives. But notice something. Even the man's servant shared his concern for the son. And all the household was about to be changed forever because of the healing of the nobleman's son. You know why? They all believed in Jesus Christ, according to what the Word of God said. And finally, look at the response that Jesus gave to this man for help. The man came to Jesus, was desired to lead Jesus to his house. But Jesus said, go your way, your son lived. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken. And he went his way. He comes to Cana. Jesus, sir... My son, 25 miles down the road, is dying. Would you please come and help him? Go your way. Your son lives. Huh? Huh? I traveled 25 miles for this. I've got 25 more miles to go back, and this is it. Just a word. No tingle. No goosebumps. No feeling. Nothing. Christ's faith. He turns. And I wonder what goes on. What goes on as he walks? You wasted your time. Your son is dead. You should have been there. I told you it was a lie. It was no good. Or he spoke his word. He who turned the water to wine can do this. He's almighty God. I saw him do it. He did that. I can trust him. The next mile shouldn't have been there. Should is that the way we do? We're up and down. We're like a cork on the ocean. I believe. I don't believe. I believe. But the man put it in his heart. He obeyed the word of God. Say it with me again. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke 
to him. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And the man believed the word. He said, I've exalted my word above my name. Friend, you're going to have a battle in the mind with the word. Here's the battlefield right here. Here's the battlefield. We're to bring our thoughts to the captivity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Cast away all vain imagination. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, Paul said. It's a battle of the mind. 25 miles walking down the road, that battle going on. But it's Christ's faith turned into a confident faith and once he showed up it turned into a confirmed faith and then it became a contagious faith. The whole household began to believe in the person of Jesus Christ the Lord. With every step of obedience we move further into the fullness of God's richest blessing. With every command there is a promise. Go your way, your son lives. There's the command and there's the fulfillment of the promise. Yes. You see, he didn't, he didn't have a text message. He didn't have a telephone say, is he okay? He had to walk it out. Amen. Come on, he had to walk it out. I said he had to walk it out. Yeah. We have to walk it out. Sometimes when God gives the promise here, we don't get it here. We got to walk it out. Amen. We got to walk it out. And as we keep on walking, it may be one day, it may be one week, it may be one year, it may be five years, it may be 13 years, but I am still walking and I trust God that you're still walking because I know the God that spoke and you know the God that spoke and we're not going to let the devil rob us, we're not going to let the devil deceive us. We take the word that the Lord told us and we stand on it. It's God's reputation, it's God's character and we're the one that's got to walk it out. Amen. I got to hurry. The power of God accomplishes the promise of God. The miracle of healing demonstrates the power that Jesus Christ knows no bounds. The 20 miles distance, 25 miles between Cana and Capernaum was no big deal to God. Amen. No big deal to God. From the moment Jesus spoke the word, the boy was instantly healed. Amen. Made whole. Jesus' first miracle in Cana Turn the water to wine was a miracle over time. Jesus' second miracle in Cana of healing this noble son was a miracle over space. The fact that the father believed the word did not know the result to the next day is evidence that the man had a confident faith in Jesus. He trusted the word that Jesus spoke and so shall we. Amen. The next day the man's on his way home. The servants come running out to him. <laughs> guess what? Guess what? Your son's alive. The father's response was remarkable. He didn't go, wow. Praise the Lord. No, what he said, when did it happen? That was his response. When did he get better? They said, the seventh hour yesterday. And with those words, the nobleman knew the exact time that Jesus had spoken was the exact time the boy was healed. Because of the intercession of the father, on behalf of his sick son, a greater miracle took place. Not only was the boy healed, but all the household was saved. The enemy don't want to see miracles of healing. The enemy don't want to see miracles of salvation. The enemy don't want to see God's working for him. You know why? Because one miracle will bring another and another and another. We serve a God of miracle. We serve a God of impossibility. Let's seek the face of God in intercessor prayer and pull the walls down for the glory of God. 
If you know somebody today and need a prayer, stand in the gap. God's not limited by time, and God's not limited by space. You can intercede for your family, for your son, your daughter, sons or daughters, mother, father, brother, sister, prodigal sons. If you're not something to pray for, pray for me. I need the prayer and you need the practice. We can pray for our missionaries. We can pray for God's will to be done. We can pray for the lost and dying. After all, as we pray for the salvation, the lost, and healing of people, that is the will of God. Intercession has no boundary. The power of intercessory prayer can reach the masses around the world. There's power in prayer, but the prayer must be prayed in faith to God. We stand before God as priests, a holy royal priesthood. In our standing before God as holiness because of Calvary and because of His salvation and sanctification, we stand not in our righteousness but His. We can stand before God and sinful man, stand before God in sickness, stand before God in bondage. I'm here to tell you, we can make a difference in prayer. God, I pray, raise up war rooms where we go into the heavenlies and we pull down strongholds. I pray God will raise up birthing rooms not to give physical birth, but when Zion travails in prayer, sons and daughters are birthed into God's kingdom. And I pray for healing rooms. Not so much a room with a life says healing, but we get on our face before God and we intercede. We intercede. Just like this man did, he goes to Jesus. Lord, my son, 25 miles down the road sick, will you cure him? How long was he there? I don't know how long he was there. He had to fight through the crowd of unbelief, maybe. He had to swallow his own pride, maybe. He had to get rid of all those Galileans. He was, he was a nobleman in, in, in Herod's army. I don't know what kind of hell he had to go through to get to Jesus, but he got there. You know why? Desperation. God, let me be desperate. Let food be tasteless. Let pillows become hard. And God's been waking me and my wife up around 3, 4 o'clock every morning. And I find myself praying this morning, 3 o'clock. I didn't want to get 3 o'clock. But I find myself interceding because faces of loved ones, your loved ones, my friends, my family are before me. And I take it to God. We've got to leave the results with Him. Yeah. If we'll do our part, God will always do His God's calling some of us into intercessory prayer, if not all of us. The Bible said, the effectual fervent of prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The English Standard Version said, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Let me chew them, spit it out again. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Working.